Welcome to the Anne Arundel County Police Department. What you are about to hear are real stories, told by some of the men and women who lived through them. Join us as we examine active, closed, and sometimes cold cases with an occasional look behind the badge. Our mission is to be informative and engaging with the goal of providing justice and just maybe closure to our victims and their families. I'm Chris Anderson, and this is The Crime Journal. Hey, I'd like to welcome everyone to the show. I am your host, Chris Anderson, and you're listening to The Crime Journal. As we begin this episode, I want to remind our listeners that this case is an open and ongoing investigation. Detectives are still seeking information, tracking down, and following up on leads. If you or anyone you know has information that can help us solve this case, please call the Anne Arundel County Police Department tip line at 410-222-4700. The earthy smells of fall have started to fill the air. It's the early morning hours of Tuesday, September 16th, 2008. Residents across the Brooklyn Park community are fast asleep, but there are always exceptions. Two brothers on Cedar Hill Road seemingly immersed in a head-to-head confrontation on a virtual baseball field. Competitive, as most brothers are, going play-for-play in a harmless video game. But just then, a somewhat discreet tapping from outside their bedroom window. One of the brothers goes to investigate, pulling back the curtain, and then suddenly, the silence of the night is pierced by the deafening crack of a single gunshot. The brothers sprint into their mother's room, where 25-year-old Rudolph Turner Jr. collapses on the floor. Despite extensive life-saving efforts, Rudolph Turner Jr. does not survive his injuries. And I lay in that bedroom every night. And I look at that floor where my son was and where he took his last breath. And even... What happened to Mrs. Turner should never happen to any parent. Her son was shot and killed in his bedroom and the safety of her home. It still impacts her today. Mommy, yes, I've been shot. And he was holding right here. And I'm like, oh, my God. To be honest with you, it was just like... That's exactly what it sounded like. His brother Raphael was in the room with him when he was shot. That's when I heard something sound like a rock came through the window. It sounded like a rock came through the window and I seen him fly back. And I was like, and I sat there and he was like, go tell mommy. He was like, go tell mommy, call the police. I just got shot. Mrs. Turner knows someone knows something. Whoever you are, and I know you know who you are, how would you feel if this happened to you in the privacy of your home? Detective John Guida is with Anne Arundel County's cold case squad. They've been looking at information since the homicide happened and wants to hunt down every lead to find answers. We know there's people out there, or I feel that there's people out there with information, um, but they're afraid to tell it for, for any number of reasons. But Ms. Turner and the family, they need closure. I'm not mad. I just want to be able to have this resolved. That's all I want. It's been almost two years exactly to the day for the homicide, and there's still a lot of questions. Police and the cold case squad hopes that someone has the answers. In Crownsville, I'm Don Harrison for ABC2 News. And joining us again today is our homicide cold case detective, uh, Jason DiPietro. Thanks for having me again, Chris. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thank you for being here. And as always, uh, Jackie Davis uh, is to my left. Happy New Year, guys. Good to be back. Good to see both of you guys again. It is good to be back. So today, um, our case revolves around uh, a homicide that happened back in 2008. 
uh, with our victim being Mr. Rudolph Turner Jr. Yes. And uh, I'd like to take everyone back to September 16th of 2008, the time um, at 1.51 in the morning, police got a call for a report of a shooting that occurred in the 500 block of Cedar Hill Road, which is in the northern part of our county. The Brooklyn Park section. Brooklyn Park, okay. yes. And when officers got there, uh, we found a um, unresponsive male, uh, later identified as Mr. Rudolph Turner. He had suffered a gunshot wound to his upper body. And unfortunately, despite life-saving efforts, he was pronounced deceased at the scene. How old was Mr. Turner? At the time this occurred, he was 25. Wow. Okay. So a young man. So um, you guys get the call um, as uh, uh, as a homicide detective or whichever detective was assigned to the case on that particular night. And and where do you go from their initial response to the scene? Well, when officers – obviously, when we're notified, we respond to the scene. The first thing we do is, of course, we uh, – we briefed the officers on scene to see what occurred. What we had learned is that um, prior to the shooting, uh, Mr. Turner was playing a video game in his room with a family member. And uh, the one family member got up to leave the room. They heard a knocking at the window. And um, Mr. Turner went to check on it, check on the knocking on his window. When he opened the uh, shade, the family member heard a gunshot wound. And uh, Mr. Turner was hit by gunfire. So the – the the family member didn't actually see it. He he heard, saw that his brother was going to investigate and was. Yes, the family member was actually leaving the room. This was all about simultaneous. He had gotten up to leave the room. There was uh, a knock at the window, and that's when Mr. Turner went to check. And when he opened up the shade, there was a uh, the family member advised he had heard a gunshot wound or gun. He had heard a gunshot, and that's when he noticed that his um his family member had been struck. Wow. So is this a single family residence in a ground floor apartment? What is what is this home? It's it's a single family residence. Um, Mr. Turner's the bedroom was on the first floor. So, you know, someone could just walk up from the outside and knock on it, not need the assistance of a ladder or any type of thing like that. Um, through the course of the investigation, through subsequent interviews and neighborhood canvases, uh, we learned that um, the person that did this uh, – Basically walked up to the window, knocked on it, and then when Mr. Turner produced himself is when this individual shot him through the glass. And Any no go ahead. Any reports of of you know a vehicle heard or seen fleeing at a, a quick rate of speed? Or I guess at the time ring doorbells weren't really a thing, so there's none of that type of stuff, right? Yeah. So in a case like this. If this were to happen in today's day and age, ring doorbells are, of course, invaluable to us. We didn't have that back then. Um, we do have a neighbor that reported hearing a door close after the shooting and a vehicle drive off. So we do believe that the person that did this uh, got to the scene and left the scene using a vehicle. Now, what is that neighborhood like? Is it an easy way for a vehicle to get out of the neighborhood and, and disappear? Yeah, you're, routes? yeah. So if you're familiar with the area, you can disappear pretty quickly. You can very quickly get into Baltimore City. If you head south, you can you can easily get away very quickly if you're, you're familiar with the area. Lots of uh, interstates and stuff in the area, I assume. Yes. And I have personally never been a detective, but from what you're telling me and from what we've talked about so far, it doesn't seem like this is a random uh, incident. No, we believe this incident to be targeted and we believe Mr. Turner was the attendant target. Okay. Yeah, because I'm, I'm assuming there were more than just uh, Mr. Turner and uh, – the other occupant of the room in that particular house. Correct. In that specific room, those are the only two in the room. But um, 
again, based upon the investigation, we are confident in saying that Mr. Turner was the intended target of the shooting. And then we, we've talked in, in previous episodes about um, where, where the, the direction goes as far as talking to, you know, uh, associates, girlfriend, boyfriend, those sorts of things. Where, where did that start going? Or was that immediate or, or how long did it take to start going to questioning people outside of, of the Turner household? So it, the information became available quite quickly through the uh, – at the time, detectives that handled it uh, through interviews with family members and friends. Um, we learned that Mr. Turner had um, – hang on. I got to think how I got to word that. No, you're fine. It because we know tricky. that there's certain things that we can't yeah, discuss because of investigation integrity. Right. Um, and so, so that's one of the uh, – another difficult thing. Um, that, that you guys are facing in your unit about what you can talk about and who you can talk about those things with in trying to, you know, garner more information on the case. Right. So this is what I can say pertaining to that is through interviews, we learned that Mr. Turner had recently um, befriended an individual who at the time was going through a breakup with another individual. And that individual that this person had broken up with um, was not happy about it, and there was allegations of threats being made against Mr. Turner by this individual. Because yeah, we all we always hear the the love, lust, greed, the, those sorts of things. So it looks like it was uh, either maybe sort of the the revenge path or the love or lost love path uh, moving forward with um, the the direction that this investigation was going to go. Yes, and through the investigation, um, again, I can't. I got to be careful of my specifics here. Uh, this individual who had been gone with the breakup with Mr. Turner's friend, um, we know for a fact he did not actually commit the homicide. However, there is information out there to indicate that he had it set up. Um, and we believe that uh, the person that actually did it was an acquaintance of this individual. And we know that people in the Glen Burnie area, we hope they hear this podcast um, because of obviously time has gone by, relationships have changed. Uh, will come forward, do the right thing, and give us that last piece of the puzzle so we can get um, the people responsible for killing Mr. Turner charged. So this is not only a murder, it's a murder for hire as well, you think? We believe so, yes. Wow. Okay. And I know it's sometimes frustrating to people when they're listening to these podcasts and here we are asking them for information and they kind of feel like, well, you're asking us for information, but you're not giving us a lot to go on. And I think it's important for people to understand that the reason you can't give out specifics is because that really comes into play to secure a conviction um, and to help prevent any type of um, false information, people looking for their 15 minutes of fame. Um, so you have to hold that information close to you to corroborate what a witness or suspect would say. Correct. If if And again, we know for a fact there are individuals out there that could help us we could solve this case today if certain people do the right thing and contact us and tell us the truth. When there's only the, as far as the very specific details to not only this case, but any criminal case goes, the police have to keep some things close to the chest. And the reason we do that again is because if a witness comes forward and says, look, this is the information I know. This is what someone may have told me. This is what I may have seen. This is may have what I heard. We're able to basically you know, distinguish fact from fiction very quickly because details were never released to the public. So if someone talks about something that was never released, we know that the information they have is credible. Which is really, really important. And you touched on it too about 
time. Um, sometimes time works in your favor in these type of cases where relationships change, loyalties change. Um, but sometimes people's just status in life changes or where they are physically can change. Um, and I think if people are curious, not saying that it pertains to this case, but just in any of our cases, I don't think we've mentioned before, the resource of checking VineLink. And VineLink is a national database, um, federally funded, where anybody can check the status of somebody to see if they are in jail. Um, again, not saying that this has anything to do with this case at all, but it's something that we haven't mentioned previously on our podcast of you being able to check the status of somebody if you're worried about retaliation on any case, um, homicide, theft, whatever it may be, check VineLink. If they are incarcerated, they are no longer a threat to you. Um, and that's important for people to, to have that resource as well. Correct. And not only is VineLink an invaluable resource that people can check it, you know, you can also use Google. And Google, if you know someone committed a crime, you can, and you just didn't want to tell the police at the time why or the person who, because you were afraid of the person, you can Google that person's name and because of media and social media and all, you can see if someone's been charged and convicted of something, what sentence they receive. Then, of course, you can check to see Vinelink to make sure that they're incarcerated. The one thing about Vinelink you can also do is you can actually um, set it up to notify you if someone's oh. custody status changes. So if you're that. you know domestic violence victim or something like that, it will email you to say, hey, John Smith is being released or John Smith is being moved from this facility to another. That's that's good information just for people to have in general. That's awesome. Yes. And that works for all 50 states, I believe, right? I think yes. It's a federal. Very cool. So as a cold case detective, um, this goes all the way back to 2008. How much, and I know that we can't talk about specifics when it comes to pieces of evidence, but how much... I guess, physical evidence was there to point you in a certain direction, if there was any physical evidence at all? All the physical evidence in this case was, over the years, has been examined, re-examined. Um, and again, we're kind of at that, I like to say, the proverbial fork in the road, where we're very close on this case. We just need that last piece of the puzzle to someone, you know, it's a corner piece of a puzzle. We need someone to come forward, do the right thing, and say, hey, this is the informa information I have pertaining to this case. And we believe that uh, if we get additional information, we'll have a successful prosecution. So tell us a little bit about who Mr. Turner was. What did you learn about him and, and his victimology and who was he as a person? He was, by all accounts, a normal guy. He worked full time. Um, he was, from what everyone told us, he was that type of guy that if you were having a problem in life, any problem, you could always go to him to confide in him saying, hey, I'm having this issue. And he would always try to help you work that out. Um, so, you know, to have, to be at home, literally playing a video game and to have a knock at your window. And of course, who wouldn't go look? Cause you're like, what the heck is that? Yeah. And then really he was murdered at the prime of his life. I mean, that just, I mean, it's, it's sad. And, and the people that did this are, you know, they don't deserve the ability to be able to walk around free in my opinion. Yeah. That's, that's heartbreaking. Did he have any children or any of that? I don't know if he did or not. Yeah, I don't I don't know either. Yeah, he did, yes. Oh, okay. That's a shame too. So his child had to grow up without their dad. And it's been fifteen years, so that child is depending probably on, an adult. Um at, at this point, depending on their age. Going through uh, high school graduation and, and proms and all of that without a primary male role model. That's heartbreaking. Wow. 
yeah, and, and not only for, you know, this family, the Turner family in general, they're very, very nice people. Um, they, they are, they understand our, our frustration in this investigation because although we're close, we're still a little bit far away to, to bringing the people responsible for this. I know in the past, Ms. Turner has talked about forgiveness, but in order, in my opinion, to get forgiveness, you have to be held accountable first. So that's what we're looking for is the people out there and you know who you are because we've most likely talked to you. Do the right thing. Pick up the phone. Call us. And um, again, we are offering a $10,000 reward in this case for the successful arrest and conviction of the person or people responsible for this crime. And I know it's frustrating for for you guys and the family when you talk to uh, to the family and say, look, we're, we're very close. We just need one more piece of the puzzle. Um, but it is so important, especially here in, in the U.S. criminal justice system, you only get one shot at a conviction. Double jeopardy is not a thing here. So if you try something just because you have probable cause but don't have the beyond a reasonable doubt, you potentially have a murder a murderer getting off, and then there's not a thing you can do about it, even if he comes back the next day and says, yeah, I did it. Correct. So, yes. so that's very frustrating, I'm sure, for you and the families. Um, but I'm sure when you explain that to them of, look, we only get one one bite of this apple, so to speak, and if we drop the ball on this, there's not a darn thing that we can do going forward. Um, but that's why this one piece is so important. We have to get beyond a reasonable doubt. We cannot go to court and not make sure that we have secured that that conviction with the state's attorney's office. Correct. Um, you know, Again, the police can arrest people for just probable cause. The state's attorney's office to convict someone needs beyond a reasonable doubt. And in order I, to charge a case and not be able to have a good fighting chance of getting a guilty verdict, that it's not fair to the family. Um, and that's why we work so closely with our state's attorney's office to make sure that, you know, when we present a case to them, everything that could be done has been done. And it's a solid case that they can present in court. Well, in all fairness, too, we want to make sure we have the right guy. We don't want to charge somebody and have somebody with a murder charge on their record if we are not 110% sure that they are the one that, that convicted that murder. You know, we're not in the business of charging the wrong people. Um, so I know it's very important to you and your team to make sure that you have all those I's dotted and T's crossed, not only to secure the conviction, but make sure you're convicting the right person and we have the right person in jail. Correct. And we we alluded to um, some technology at the beginning of this conversation about like ring doorbell cameras, and we're talking about 2008. So um, the cell phones are, are big, social media is big, um, text messaging. Was there any sort of digital um, avenues for for you to be able to go down to be like, hey, we can put this person in this place at this time, and kind of help further your 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 case on that end. So is without getting into specifics, because again, we have to pre preserve some of this because um, eventually we do want to be able to present this to, in a court. There was a digital footprint that was analyzed by the police, which assists us in leading to what we believe, A, why it happened and B, who is involved. Um, and that's why, you know, through interviews and the digital footprint and some other evidence that we have, it's taken us down the road that we are at. And that's why we are reaching out to viewers, um, particularly in the Glen Burnie area. If you lived around that area at the time, there are people out there with information. We know this for a fact. We just, again, we need someone to, to do the right things and uh, call us and tell us what they know. 
because yeah, we, we, we talk a lot about the, the frustration of the family, the frustration of the detectives of knowing what you know without the last thread to be able to prove that you know what you know, you know, in a court of law to say, hey, beyond a reasonable doubt, this person did what we're accusing them of doing. Right. So you have the two types. I like to call two types of investigation. You have the type of case where you honestly have no idea who did this. You've exhausted everything and it's not pointing you in one direction or another to who's involved or who's responsible. Then the second type of case is a case that, and this would this case would fall into it, that through the investigation, it takes you in a direction you've identified individuals that you believe are responsible and there's motive, there's opportunity, and there's other evidence out there to indicate that, but you just don't have quite enough yet to be able to charge it and present it before a judge or jury. Wow. And this is this case is, is kind of unique for us, at least for the podcast, um, because we're used to sitting here with Detective DePietro and talking to him about um, how this was for him and his team. But in this case, I actually got the opportunity to talk to Rudolph's mom, Miss Turner, um, a little bit earlier today and, and talking to her and hearing the emotion in her voice when she talks about her baby that she lost over 14 years ago. Um, it's very moving. And, and here's a little bit of how that conversation went. Well, Ms. Turner, could you just start by by telling us about Rudolph and tell us a little bit about him? I understand you called him Q. Yes, Q was my firstborn. Um, you know, you have two loves of your life. One mm -hmm. is your parents and the other ones are your kids. He was my mm -hmm. firstborn, so he definitely was the love of my life. You know, he and I basically grew up together. I had him, you know, when I was 21. And I decided long before then that um, I was going to relocate over here on the Eastern Shore. And he was really, I mean, I'm sorry, over on the Western Shore. Oh. And he was really excited about that. So I told him, I said, you know, I know you guys can have a better life. So, you know, that's why I brought you over here on the Western Shore. Okay. He, he excelled very well in school. Um, had a daughter at a young age, which wasn't too happy about it, but you know, she's here, <laughs> she's beautiful, she's 21 going on 22. So oh I cannot complain at all now. She is now the love of my life, which she has always been, but yes. What a gift he gave you with her. Yes, yes. And that's that's why, you know, when this happened 14 years ago, I forgave the person that did it because I had to. That's the only way I was able to heal. Wow. Yes, now, the only way I was able to heal. That was going to be my my next question because I'm a mom too, and and my heart just bleeds for you having to to lose a child. How have you been able to, to to carry on and continue doing life these last 14 years without any answers? A lot of prayers. A lot of prayers. A lot of prayers. I mean, you know, I still see a lot of his friends. They still come over here. And Aww. see me, you know, just to check on me, make sure I'm okay. If I'm out, they take me out to dinner, whatever. It's like, they're still with me. And that's why I, I know that. he's still with me. And I mean, I have my moments. Don't get me wrong. Trust me. I really honestly do. <sighs> that's why I don't like looking at the news. Because every time I hear about somebody <sighs> losing a son, I lose it. I'm like, yeah. eh, can't really watch the news unless I want to see what the weather is. What What would finding answers mean for you and and your grandbabies what would that what would that do for you guys it would be a huge weight off my shoulders 
It really honestly would, because I've always said, and, and every morning when I get up and read my daily bread, and I pray to God, and I say, you know, just let this be solved before I leave this earth, because I don't want that on Raphael and Jada. Yeah. Let it be on me. Let it be on me. Let, let, let me live long enough to see justice for my son, and I'll be okay. Yeah. I will be okay. What do you have to say to anybody who might have information? What do you what is your your plea to them? I know they all know who did it. I know they do. Why they won't say anything, I don't know. And if they are holding back, I really wish they wouldn't. Because it's just been too many years. You know, all of you saying, I mean, you know, I've heard different things like, yeah, we know he did it. We know he did. I that's not what I want. I yeah. want it pinpointed. That's all I yeah. want. And if you cannot come to me with accurate information, I can't do it. Right. I can't do it. I really need to know and just get some relief from it. That's all yeah. I want. And like I said, you know, I forgave whoever did it. That's the only way I'm I'm able to heal. That's a that's a huge, huge person. I don't know if I would be able to to forgive somebody for that. That says volumes wanna, about you. Yeah, I, I just don't want to harbor those ill feelings toward anybody i really honestly don't and i was like i to always tell raphael and i tell jada too i always want you guys to treat people like they treat you mm-hmm. if you see somebody looking at you wrong just turn the opposite i seriously just just turn away and that's why i said i'm gonna forgive them even though i don't really have that that exact proof but i'm going to forgive whoever did this to my son and i did i did you are an amazingly strong woman Thank That's, you. Well, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I'm I'm really hopeful, um, you know, that maybe this will will help get his story out there again, if nothing else. Um, oh, I hope you know, so, so too. people do not forget his name and do not forget him, and um, you know, that's definitely the goal. That hopefully somebody hears this, and it has been, gosh, fourteen, almost fifteen years. Yeah. That um, hopefully somebody you know who maybe was loyal to somebody isn't loyal to them anymore, or or, or whatnot, but. I just don't understand these young people. I mean, you know, you say you don't want to be a snitch, but this is somebody's life we're talking about. It's been a whole lot. You know, as I look at it, you did it. Why not pay for it? You were man enough to do it. Yes. Why not pay for it? Why Why are you hiding behind somebody else? That's a good point. Seriously, why are you hiding behind somebody else? And I know with everybody that hung around, whomever, somebody knows something. Somebody knows something. And I'm quite sure it's been somebody. Who has looked at me, who has smiled at me, who has given me a hug, but they know something. And that's all I want them to do is just to come forward. That's all. Wow. That that conversation um really kind of kind of brought this this home to me that it's, you know, you hear of a homicide and you hear of a life lost and and it's sad and it's heartbreaking and you try to put yourself in that situation, but you you just really can't. Um but speaking with Miss Turner as a mama myself. Um, and hearing that pain in her voice still almost 15 years later, it, it's it's going to leave a mark on you. And I certainly hope that um, the right people were listening to her just now. And it gives you that different perspective of the, the family member's point of view. These, you know, decade plus later of still dealing with these, these issues and still looking for these answers and and knowing that it's minuscule differences between what we know and what we need and just just one person who is 
potentially listening to this um, can say, hey, I've, I've dealt with this burden long enough in my life. I'm going to come forward and, and let it be known that, that this is what happened. Right. And specifically, since we're talking over 14 years ago when this happened, what happens when, you know, when we're younger and everyone's the same way, I was the same way. You don't think about mortality. You don't think about death that much. But as you get older, you start to, you know what, my life will end one day. And we hope that people hearing this has matured over the years and has always been on the fence about doing the right thing. And maybe that they listened to what Ms. Turner had to say. And my hat goes off to her because I know her speaking to you guys was, was gut-wrenchingly hard for her. And I thank her for that. Um, we're hoping that the people, as they've gotten older now, you know, respect life a little bit more than maybe they did when they were 14, you know, 14 years ago. And Ms. Turner actually took the time to write a victim impact statement for us uh, that she asked me to read on this podcast. So here's what is in um, Ms. Turner's heart put into the written word. As I sit here and write this impact letter, I'm still hurting for what happened to my son, Rudolph Turner Jr., over 14 years ago. On September 16, 2008, my whole world changed right before my eyes in a matter of 30 minutes. When my youngest son, Raphael, came to t tell me that Q had been shot and to call the police. I started praying to God that it wasn't true, but it was. But I could never question why God took my son. Instead, I chose to forgive the person or people that did this to him. It's been hard on me, his brother, father, and especially his daughter, Jada, who was seven at the time. She is the one who has had to endure so much pain and to grow up without her father or to experience any more of his everlasting love. I'm asking again, if you know who committed this heinous crime, please come forward so that Rudolph can finally rest in peace. And for all of us that love him, to know we can finally have closure. Yeah. Well, thank you again for, for coming down and, and being Rudolph's voice. Um, he hasn't had one in almost 15 years, and, and you and his mama, Miss Turner, are, are it. So thank you again for, for taking the time for this. And thank you again. Again, I'd like to remind all the, the uh, viewers or listeners, sorry, <laughs> that um, there is a $10,000 reward being offered for the arrest and conviction of the killer or killers for Mr. Turner. And as always, they can contact us anonymously at 410-222-4700. Yeah. Um, thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jackie. And uh, I look forward to sitting down with the both of you again in the, the very near future to discuss the uh, the, the next case. All right. Thank you again for having me. And thank you to your listeners. Thank you. Here we are some 14 years since that dreadful night for the Turner family. So many questions still remain unanswered, knowing that someone has the answers being sought. His mother still holds on to the memory of her son and the life that could have been for him. His brother was deprived of the guidance and mentorship of his older brother. His daughter has grown up into a woman without the watchful eye of her loving father. Goodbyes that were never said, tomorrows that would never be. His name is Rudolph Turner Jr. We'd like to take a moment to thank our friends over at WMAR2 News in Baltimore for their help in making this episode possible, and to thank our listeners for joining us. Cases like these are often solved with help from the community. Once again, if you or anyone you know has information that can help us solve this case, 
please call the Anne Arundel County Police tip line at 410-222-4700. I'm Chris Anderson, and you've been listening to The Crime Journal.